I'm Andrew Faust, here with Permaculture Perspectives. And today I'm going to be digging into a few of my latest favorite reads that I wanted to share with you some sections of. The first book I'll be reading from is called Humankind by Rutger Bregman, author of Utopia for Realists. Really excellent book that digs into a lot of the case studies that we've based notions that people are not inherently prone to be nice or friendly to one another, and he debunks a great deal of that and shows that while there is nuance to the conversation about making a generalization like, are people inclined to be good to one another or are people inclined to be bad to one another? And these generalizations, it turns out, don't serve us in many aspects. The first being that it's inaccurate to say that people are prone to be violent and cruel and nasty and brutish, but that in fact, people more often than not have a tendency to be kind and caring and loving. And he goes through Stanford studies, he goes through the Holocaust, he talks about Nazi Germany, he talks about all kinds of issues that are going on in the modern world today. He talks about the Arab Spring, the French Revolution, a really great survey of history with a focus on this question about human nature and human beings. So that is Humankind, A Hopeful History is the subtitle by Rutger Bregman. And we're going to read from page 249 on this edition. The chapter title is, What Enlightenment Got Wrong? Influential rationalists like Smith and Hume made a point of emphasizing the vast capacity humans show for empathy and altruism. Why then, if all these philosophers were so attuned to our admirable qualities, were their institutions, democracy, trade, and industry, so often premised on pessimism? Why did they continue to cultivate a negative view of human nature? We can trace the answer in one of David Hume's books, in which the Scottish philosopher articulates precisely this contradiction in the Enlightenment thought. Quote, it is therefore a just political maxim that every man must be supposed a knave, though at the same time it appears somewhat strange that a maxim should be true in politics which is false in fact. In other words, Hume believed that we should act as though people have a selfish nature, even though we know they don't. Could this be the thing that the Enlightenment, and by extension our modern society, gets wrong, that we continually operate on a mistaken model of human nature. And this is one of the concepts that I've been speaking to in my classes for several decades now, teaching high school students the perspective that this notion that people are inherently bad is at the foundation of our punitive system of law in the United States and that in fact 
we also have the assumption underlying our mandatory educational policy, which presupposes that if people are left to their own devices, they will get into trouble and they need to be reprimanded in order for them to do the right thing. And I would suggest that, in fact, what encourages, quote, people or individuals to do the right thing is when they feel supported, cared for, loved unconditionally, are well-fed, well-nourished, have a good home, have a caring community. And when we do not have these things, when we don't have good air to breathe, good water to drink, good diets, and a healthy community, we are bereft, we are destitute, and we are much more inclined to be desperate and violent and authoritarian. And then, in fact, authoritarianism goes hand in hand with the capitalist, extractive, exploitative, reductionist, industrial economy that we are right now held hostage by as a people and as a planet. So back to Rutger Bregman. In chapter one, we saw that some things can become true merely because we believe in them. That pessimism becomes self-fulfilling prophecy. When modern economists assumed that people are innately selfish, they advocated policies that fostered self-serving behavior. When politicians convinced themselves that politics is a cynical game, that's exactly what it became. So now we have to ask, could things be different? Can we use our heads and harness rationality to design new institutions, institutions that operate on a wholly different view of human nature? And this is a very important point he makes here as we're wrapping up this passage. I think it's essential that we transform these institutions. What if schools and businesses, cities and nations expect the best of people instead of presuming the worst? These questions are the focus of the rest of this book. That's page 250. The book ends on page, let's see here, 400. So he spends a good 150 pages on what he calls a new realism. Fast forward, page 311. I wanted to share with you a little of his take on the commons. Here we go. This communal basis is a vital mainstay of capitalism. Consider how many companies are utterly dependent on the generosity of their customers. Facebook would be worth far less without the pictures and videos that millions of users share for free. And Airbnb wouldn't survive long without the innumerable reviews travelers post for nothing. So why are we so blind to our own communism? Maybe it's because the things we share don't seem all that remarkable. We take sharing them for granted. 
Nobody has to print flyers explaining to people that it's nice to take a stroll in Central Park. Clean air has no need for public service announcements instructing you to inhale it. Nor do you think of that air or the beach you relax on or the fairy tales you recount as belonging to somebody. It's only when someone decides to rent out the air, appropriate the beach, or claim the rights to the fairy tale that you take notice. Wait a minute, you think. Didn't this belong to all of us? The things we share are known as the commons. They include just about anything, from a community garden to a website, from a language to a lake. As long as it's shared and democratically managed by a community, some commons are parts of nature's bounty, like drinking water. Others are human inventions, websites like Wikipedia. For millennia, the commons constituted almost everything on Earth, our nomadic ancestors had scarcely any notion of private property and certainly not of states. Hunter-gatherers viewed nature as a giving place that provided for everybody's needs and they didn't have complicated they didn't have a complicated legal system to patent an invention or a tune. As we saw in chapter 3, success to the fact that we master plagiarists. Sorry. It is only in the past 10,000 years that steadily bigger slices of the commons have been swallowed up by the market and the state. It began with the first chieftains and kings who laid claim to the lands which had previously been shared by everyone. Today, it's mainly multinationals that appropriate all kinds of commons from water resources. So back to Eugene Debs. We're reading a quote of his from 1904, Harvey Wasserman, History of the United States. Our political institutions are also being used as the destroyers of that individual property upon which all liberty and opportunity depend. The promise of economic independence to each person was one of the faiths upon which our institutions were founded. But under the guise of defending private property, capitalism is using our political institutions to make it impossible for the vast majority of human beings ever to become possessors of private property and the means of life. Capitalism is the enemy and destroyer of essential private property. Its development is through the legalized confiscation of all that the labor of the working class produces above its subsistence wage. The private ownership of the means of employment grounds society in an economic slavery which renders intellectual and political tyranny inevitable. Socialism comes so to organize industry and society that every individual shall be secure in that private property in the means of life upon which their liberty of being, thought, and action depend. 1904. So I think you can get a good sense today of these interwoven themes as we think about human nature and the inclination to be good to one another and the understanding that, in fact, allowing allowing a very small number of people to have a great amount of power is not a good plan for a healthy society. 
and that we all share a commons, that we have a moral and ethical obligation to be participating with in manners that are mutually beneficial, ecological, and socially responsible. And as we create a world for ourselves based on optimism and not based on pessimism and embrace the truly beautiful, powerful, and magical beings that we are as human beings on this amazing planet that we've inherited, we will come into the dawn of a new age and we will transition from these dark and downtrodden times into a time where we are able to see the power and the majesty of who we really are, which is a species that is caring, loving, and communicative. Thank you for listening, and I hope you can join some of our ongoing classes and conversations as we build a community of like-minded people who are collaborating to create a society of health and well-being. Enjoy your day on this amazing planet. Andrew Faust, permaculturenewyork.com. Drop me a line there. Tell me how you're enjoying these podcasts and any themes or concepts or interviews you'd like me to do. Also, give me a shout out and let me know. Be well.